Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and associate professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and dean of students at RTS. Hey, Peter. Hey, Scott, good to be with you again. Great to have you. Also joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Associate Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean here at RTS. Hey, Tommy. Hey. And also joined by Dr. Paul Jean, Lecturer in New Testament at RTS and Senior Pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in Northern Virginia. Hey, Paul. Scott, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you all. It's great to have you. We also, of course, have our already not professor of systematic theology, Gray Sutanto, our man on the ground in Jakarta. Hey, Gray. Hey, Scott. Once again, good to be here. It's great to have you. And today we also have a special guest, instructor at RTS Washington, Dr. Irwin Ince. Hey, Irwin. Good to be with you all this morning. Everybody in our circles knows Irwin. He's a well-known figure. He's a native of New York City. He's a graduate of RTS Washington, and he now teaches here as well as in the Orlando and Dallas campuses of RTS. Uh, he received a Doctor of Ministry from Covenant Theological Seminary, uh, but we don't hold that against him. As a matter of fact, I think we talked about this, Erwin, back when you were looking at a D-Min, and it was at a time when RTS, RTS's D-Min was going through a little bit of an overhaul and. Uh, um, right. I, along with many others, recommended Covenant Theological Seminary, and, and uh, you did great work there. Thanks. Um, you were also, as you know, an ordained teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church of America and the head of the Institute of Cross-Cultural Mission. That's a ministry of Grace D.C. Church here in Washington, D.C., and the broader PCA denomination. We've been talking, Erwin, uh, starting last week and this week and going into next week, it's been a three-part series on public theology. And we've been making this distinction between public theology, where our faith has consequences in the world around us, and uh, a political theology, which would probably be a, a subcategory of public theology, but where we're really dealing with more of the workings of government and policy issues in particular. Um, but we wanted to bring you on and talk about public theology in that more general space. What are the implications of our faith, not only in the church, but also outside of the church? Mm -hmm. And you and I have been doing a class uh, over the course of this last semester. So here's a bit of a plug for RTS Washington. You get to take classes like Christ, Culture, and Contextualization, which is taught by myself, Dr. Irwin Ince, and Dr. Mike Park. And just that discussion alone has really kind of piqued some of my thoughts and interests in this issue of public theology. But I want to start with that. What is your understanding in the, of the importance of public theology for the Christian today? Thank you um, for that, Scott. And uh, yeah, I second your uh, recommendation on that Christ culture and contextualization class at RTSDC. So this is an important question because it really does lots of things, I believe, this is no exception, do boil down to the, the two fundamental responsibilities or commands that we have. 
love God with everything and love our neighbors as ourselves, right? And so that aspect of what does it look like to, to love neighbors well is not simply about a sense of affection for, uh, for other people. Um, and it's not simply for those who have given uh, themselves to God through faith in Jesus Christ or fellow Christians, right? You, we don't get to uh, discriminate, as it were, in terms of who's a neighbor and who's not, right? And so we've got to engage this question of, of, a, of a public theology. What does it look like for, for Christian, as an individual Christian, for a church to love our neighbors well? Um, and so, and so it, it, there's no way to, I think, avoid the question of, uh, of developing a robust public theology, and I'll just say contextually, right, for a local church in a given place and community, what is it, what does our public theology look like there? You've been a senior pastor, uh, up at uh, up in Maryland, Columbia, Maryland, you're now working in a, in a pastoral level position with the Institute of Cross Cultural Mission. What are what are some of the biggest threats or obstacles that you see to that kind of you know wholehearted, whole you know loving of neighbor expression of faith in the church today? I will speak to this from the vantage point of the American context. Uh, I can't speak to uh, the global uh, church and uh, say that this is something that is experienced in this way all around the world. Uh, I will say that uh, because of the history of America, the reality of slavery, racism, oppression, injustice, inequities along the lines of race and class, the church has not been immune to those particular sins and very often from the beginning has been complicit in um, those sins itself. And so there is a particular fracture that we see um, in the American uh, context that we've we've become, I don't say become, we've been very comfortable in what I ca I call our ghettos, and I don't mean um, I'm not talking about social class or anything or economic status, but I'm talking about um, who's our group, who's our tribe, who's our people within the church, right? that we've been content to maintain boundaries, racial, ethnic, socioeconomic boundaries within the context of local churches. Um, and, uh, and so when you begin to talk about what does it look like to, to love neighbors well, and to, particularly across lines of difference, embracing, the fact that um, that Christ has made one new man from the two, 
and he has brought renewal, reconciliation, right? Um, when you begin to talk about these in practical ways, the barrier is on one hand, for much of majority culture in America, white American, Christian, evangelical context, it's couched as some kind of liberal, progressive, political agenda. Very often in minority contexts, in minority churches, there's a great challenge of trust when it comes to trusting people who come from a minority, a majority culture background, because there's a lot of, there, there are very fresh historical and yet still fresh wounds. Right. And so the, the, these are barriers to us living into what I would say is a, a more robust um, public theology of pursuit of union, unity and diversity and, and reconciliation, love, of course, lines of difference and divides. Erwin, I, I'm wondering if, if you could respond, you know, as a, as a hashtag real pastor, <laughs> um, for, for many of us in, you know, in, in kind of conservative evangelical churches, the, the question arises here, like as soon as the idea of public theology and loving my neighbor and doing that as a church arises, I mean, immediately the doctrine of the spirituality of the church comes to mind. And at many churches that just sort of shuts down the conversation and not necessarily because members of that church don't care or don't want to get involved in some way. It, it's simply like, I'm, I'm not at a church that is thinking about those issues or which wants to engage those issues. What then? So, so I have no responsibility because I'm not at one of those kinds of churches. Mm -hmm. So, so, so think about somebody who's in one of those kinds of churches, how can they, how can they, without trying to change their church culture overnight because churches are slow moving boats <laughs> how can they engage that and engage it not only just personally but from the standpoint of ecclesiology and within their churches yeah great question this is and it's an important question um it's an important question because one of the things I try to communicate whenever I speak to these kinds of issues is, is to your point, very often a wall is already up around these topics. And so it's important, it's, it's, it's actually incumbent upon me as a minister of the gospel, as a Christian, <laughs> to strive to communicate to my brothers and sisters these truths in a way that they will understand, right? Not that they won't be challenged, <laughs> but that, that, that I, don't, I don't start putting more bricks on the wall just by opening my mouth, right? Uh, and so it's important to communicate the language within the context of I, what I say, what we're already committed to, the word of God, and in, in a variety of contexts, the confessions that we hold to. And so th this question is about, well, I, and I take this, um, I learned this phrase years and years and years ago, um, well, maybe almost 20 years ago now, um, 19, let's say, when I met Dr. Carl Ellis, um, it was in 2001. And he, he couched it this way, he talked about 
to, to love neighbors well, we really have to learn and be concerned uh, about engaging their core cultural concerns. Right? We're not simply talking about some kind of a disembodied love that doesn't touch on the lived reality, embodied realities of, uh, of the people we're called to, uh, to love. Right? We, we, we have to know what those core cultural concerns are. And loving them well says, well, how do we help engage those core cultural concerns? Right? Our desire for people is not simply, um, it's not simply that um, they have some quote unquote non-material spiritual experience. Right? Is that they give themselves body and soul to Jesus Christ. That their that their physical bodies and realities are are engaged in living out the implications of the faith. That that we then have a concern for how they're able to. Um, to flourish well in their own communities. Do you, very often, we get, we get the privilege of sharing the good news about Jesus Christ by the way we've demonstrated our very practical love for people. That they know we don't just see them as a means to an end. When describing our responsibilities to particularly to brothers and sisters in Christ, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, is of, com of the commun communion of the saints. It's a beautiful chapter in the Westminster Confession. It talks about our mutual obligations, all, right? All those who are united to Jesus Christ. Right, are united to one another in love, and we are mutually obligated to do what, what makes for the good of our brothers and sisters, both inwardly and outwardly, the confession said. Right? In other words, the whole person, materially, spiritually, in every way. And so we don't get a pass about not being concerned about the material needs of people we're called to love. And we get, in many respects, we get this already. That's why churches have mercy ministries. That's why they set up the diaconate funds. That's why they say, how do we, how do we help those who are in need? Mm -hmm. And very often don't limit it to people who are in the church, but people who are in the community as well. And so this is an extension of that kind of expression of love, knowing what the concerns are of the people we're called to love and saying, how has God equipping us, calling us to be a blessing uh, to them? Thanks so much, Erwin. And such a great and thoughtful response. And, and Tommy, your question as well brings to my mind, you know, the relationship between preaching the gospel and what we might call social justice, right? A social justice in some circles has become a kind of bad word. Mm -hmm. This is something that was pointed out too in uh, an interview with Malcolm Foley in Christianity Today. He talked about how concern with social justice is oftentimes associated with the liberal theological tradition, right? Which says that 
if you're concerned about social justice, then you have to deny basic core theological commitments to the divinity of Christ or to the resurrection or to the the centrality of the gospel for the church's spirituality and for the church's uh, ministry and life, right? And that has always kind of struck me as um, an assumption, uh, a, a, a binary sort of assumption in American culture. Malcolm Foley does point out that it's, it's leading us back to the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy, right, in American's history. So, uh, but coming from someone who was Indonesian and studying in the States and encountering that dichotomy had always kind of struck me as a little bit odd because I've always kind of taken it for granted, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, at least in, in a lot of Asian contexts when you come from, uh, there's this assumption that if you care about the gospel, it also does mean that you have to care about social justice, about social mercy or, or mercy ministry, like you said, right? That loving God and loving your neighbor well and caring about their concerns and that includes their material needs um, goes hand in hand with preaching the gospel and that the gospel does bring about this restoration of communities, a, a reformation of, of social life, yeah. right? So I, I'm wondering uh, what do you think about that particular dichotomy as it has arisen from the States and in your own mind, perhaps, um, how as as a reformed christian as a reformed pastor think about the fundamental fundamentality of the gospel but at the same time the the importance of social justice and keeping that not as a binary but as a unity there's this is an important question and it is it's an example of why we need each other in the body of christ across lines of of difference racial and ethnic um, in the ways in which the outworking of our biblical and theological commitments have manifested themselves in various strands of the, of the church uh, in America. So, for example, the African-American um, Protestant tradition has by necessity embraced the understanding that we are moved to social concerns, that our gospel moves us in that direction. Because the people who the church was ministering to were suffering under the weight and burden of oppression and injustice. Uh, and and racism, right? And so they did not have a luxury of separating a theological idea from its implications in the in the community. And so you find so in the history of the Black Church tradition in America, it is it is robust in its con- in its commitment to the. Uh, uh, the authority and the inerrancy of scripture. And at the same time, understands its movement toward um, social concerns. So for example, I'm gonna forget the name, the title of the book. The author, her name, her last name is Matthews. But she did, um, her, her book came out of research into black, um, Protestant denominations 
between World War One and World War II, looking at their publications and how uh, they were responding to the fundamentalist debates that were taking place in American Christianity, right? So she, she writes in that, in that book, she talks about how the white evangelical fundamentalists were completely ignorant of their black Protestant counterparts and what they were writing in their denominational um, publications. But those black Protestant uh, evangelicals were aware of what their, their white um, uh, contemporaries were saying and for the most part were in agreement with their understanding of the Bible and its demands. And she writes, at the same time, they were able to, to apply those commands and demands to the very real needs of people who were suffering from injustice. So you, you put it rightly as a false dichotomy. It's not a false dichotomy. And, and I would say that majority culture churches need, have a need to learn from the experience of minority culture churches in, uh, in America and how they have applied the gospel to these social justice issues. One of the reasons I'm grateful that I didn't begin in the PCA. Uh, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. Uh, I, I came really to uh, a grasp of the faith in a traditional uh, African-American Baptist church. And then came to start going to Reform Theological Seminary, D.C., and ended up into in the PCA, right? And I'm glad, uh, particularly because prior to that, I had no real exposure to, um, uh, to documents like the Westminster Confession of Faith with its larger and shorter catechisms, the Heidelberg Confession, the Belgian, right? I didn't have those on my radar. And I love how the Westminster Larger Catechism when it begins to distill the, uh, the implications of the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, right? Um, when it begins to distill those by asking the question, by under, through the understanding that where a sin is forbidden, the opposite duty is required, and begins to ask the question, what is the sin forbidden in the commandment? What, is the, what are the duties required in the, in the commandment? And so when you get to the fifth commandment, right, honor your father and mother, your day shall be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The confession rightly understands that this is not simply about biological parents, but, 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 but it applies to all who are in legitimate authority, right, in our, in our church and in our society, right? Uh, and then begins to ask the questions, for example, right, what are the sins of superiors, those who are in legitimate authority, right? And it says the sins of superiors, right, are among the things inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, and, and profit and pleasure, commanding things that are unlawful or not within the power of the inferiors to, to perform, encouraging and favoring things that are evil. That question and answer of the catechism speaks to the issue of policing in our communities, 
it speaks to the issue of saying what are the what are the responsibilities of those who are in legitimate authority to those who are under their authority. And so our own confession in Reformed and Presbyterian circles speaks to these issues about social concerns. It's not simply limited to uh, this divide as we have now in our uh, too often in our applications of it. All right, I'll stop there. That's so good. I mean, I, I love that you're grounding the social concerns right back to our confessional commitments, uh, and, and we do stand on them as, as confessional pastors and theologians. And it just brings up the issue to my mind, something that I, that I come to think about over and over again, because uh, I think it's worth wrestling with. You know, when you read the confession in this way, I do think that you're exactly right. It has all of these social implications, but at the same time, how do you read our reformed forefathers, right? The, the 16th, 17th, 16th, 17th century Protestant Orthodox yeah. on the issues of race and gender, you know, because when I read them and maybe even someone like Calvin or even someone like Kuiper, you know, in the 19th century making comments about the Orientals or something like that, um, making comments about gender that I don't think I could agree with anymore. Um, so how do we therefore wrestle with the use of the confessions? Are we reading in something in the confessions that aren't there? Because when you read their authors, they're really not having these kind of issues in mind. How do we use, in other words, these uh, normed authorities that we do have, but at the same time, you know, I think this is a confirmation. We have to be aware that doctrine does in a way develop, yeah. right? So we stand upon doctrine, but we have to, um, understand that doctrine has to be reapplied in our own day and we have to speak to our own contemporary context with a new voice. I just wonder, how do we wrestle with these issues? Yeah. Uh, I, I remember being uh, a student at RTS and reading Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism and such gold in there. Um, but then such things that just, boy, uh, pierced my heart. <laughs> what I understood as racist attitudes towards people, non-white non Western people, <laughs> non-Western, non-white people, I mean, <laughs> sorry. Um, and so having to deal with that, I remember speaking to it a bit in what in the paper I had to write for, for that class. And it's not enough to simply dismiss this and say, oh, well, you know, they're just people of their time, right? That might be true, but we call, we need to call sin, sin. I will, I will be, I'm willing to admit that there are certain folks I can't bring myself to read like your Thornwell and Dabney, right? Theologians in the Southern Presbyterian tradition. There's such dissonance for me, right? Now, gr granted, like, the only one who gets uh, to speak where every jot and tittle <laughs> is to be um, understood as righteous is God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I understand that every one of us, our brokenness comes out. So a couple of things. One, that means for me, while I'm even critiquing the theological giants of the past, I got to do so with humility. 
I have to do so in such a way to understand to, to as I call out certain sinful things, evidences of, of racism or, or the influence of white supremacy or some other type of partiality, I have to be asking simultaneously, Lord, would you reveal to me the ways in which that's resonant in my own heart and is, and is coming out of my perspective, right? I've got to be asking those questions. And it does not mean that the Lord hasn't used people for his purposes. I mean, it's, that's what he does, right? That's what he does is, right, as the, the, the saying goes, he draws uh, straight lines with crooked sticks, right? None of us get that label of um, inerrant <laughs> in our witness and in our practice. Much of what I became passionate about when it comes to the ministry of reconciliation, the pursuit of redemptive ethnic unity in Jesus Christ was animated by reading Herman Bavink on the image of God. Right. Um, and so, you know, how would Herman Bavink have responded to me were we sitting across the table from one another? I'm not really going to ask that question, but there's a richness to his understanding of what, for example, what the Imago Dei really is. What, when will we see the Imago Dei in all of its fullness? And, and, he, and, he get, and he gets what the scriptures are saying. And so if there's a discord between what he says there and, and how he practices or what he might say about people, right, who are different than him, I get to call that out, but I don't dismiss what he said that comes out of a robust understanding of the scriptures. It's so important for young theologians, but just Christians in general, particularly coming out of the reform tradition, to remember, I mean, what you're saying here, Erwin, this, this key doctrine that we have that all of this tradition that we rightly think highly of also poses a temptation to us, which is to see their, see their contributions as being somewhere on par with scripture or something, right? And yet we have to remember, what, and we'll have that temptation, whether it's in response to you know, the Roman Catholics in the Reformation, whether it's response to the strong systematic theological tradition that we that we receive and we are, we are heirs of, whether it's seeing sort of culture around us maybe change in some ways that we don't like, there's this temptation to go back and create golden ages. And yet as the scriptures tell us over and over again, there's only one hero and that's Jesus Christ. And yet we also hold in our hand this other tension, like you said, it's, it's not just all crooked sticks, there's also straight lines, right? And so we can, we can go back and with Calvin, who himself, by the way, had some problems, we can go back with Calvin and say all human teaching is provisional, right? It's provisional. Now the word of God's not provisional, right? Our human interpretation of it yes. is provisional. Yes. And I give thanks for that as I think back on Calvin and Luther yes. and the continental reform that I can take the good stuff and I can leave the bad stuff. Right. Yeah, as, as we, um, Transition. I want to also talk about what this public theology looks like. And we've already started to touch on some of these issues. 
uh, what this looks like outside of the church. What does this look like in our conversations with our neighbors? Um, what does this look like perhaps on social media? Because none of us are having conversations with our neighbors these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, what does this look like in light of situations like the Ahmad Arbery case, yeah. where you have a young black man who goes for a jog, not knowing that he's about to join this, this, this terrible list that goes back before Emmett Till and all the way up to Eric Garner and beyond. And we're all watching this now on video and his family and his friends are having to relive this moment of a thing that happened two months before. Right. right? Um, how are we as Christians, as we're receiving these news reports, as we're seeing things like this happen and yet, we have in front of us the person of Jesus Christ, what he's redeemed us to. Someone said recently, it's not just away from sin. It's been said over and over again, but I just saw it recently. We're not just, we're not just redeemed out of sin, but we're redeemed to Christ, right? So holding forth Christ in our communities around us, what does this look like in light of stories like the Ahmad Arbery story? Good, good, good question. And I would also add, right, we, we found out shortly after the Ahmad Arbery um, incident was revealed publicly, that killing, the Breonna Taylor, uh, African-American woman who uh, was, was killed in a, a mistaken raid, right, by, by police, mm. right? They, and kind of, I don't know if they had a no-knock warrant, but they didn't. They apparently came in unannounced. She was sleeping. She's a, she's a, an EMT, an essential worker, and and was killed. No, that's not on video. The reality, the the blessing, and, and the I won't say curse, <laughs> but the the blight maybe <laughs> of our hyper-connected world with social media is that we get information, it gets disseminated quickly and broadly, right? Where things would be buried in the past where, for example, uh, you know, Malcolm Foley, who, who writes an article, wrote an article for Mere Orthodoxy, and I think he says this in his article, if he doesn't, he says it uh, elsewhere, or maybe I'm quoting somebody else. So Esau Macaulay, who's a, uh, uh, a, an African-American professor at Wheaton College, and an Anglican uh, minister uh, has a book coming out called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. They will talk about how in the black community or particularly the, the black Christian community, we don't need the statistics or all of the kind of facts to come in before making an assessment of what has taken place in these, in, in these incidents because we have a historical record of experience in a racialized society that affirms very often our worst fears. Um, and so the response from a, let's just talk about from a majority culture Christian context or 
congregation. The first response really is what is lament. The first, the first response ought not be, wait, 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 we don't have all the facts yet. Right? To know that an, an unarmed black man or woman right, was, has lost his or her life at the hands of others should grieve us and to know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are weeping, who are wailing because this, because the wounds are, they never have healed, right? That response of lament first is I, I would say a responsibility. Um, for brothers and sisters in Christ, that we weep with those who weep, right? Um, and, and then seeking understanding for why are you weeping, <laughs> right? Because it's deeper than the loss of an individual life, right? You, to engage has to, you have to begin to have a broadened perspective about a about a, how a community was, is responding and has lived in a particular context, right? And so, so these, you have to find out why are these not simply perceived as isolated incidents? They, they happen in various states and, you know, distant from each other. When I, as an African-American male, um, see portrayed on the news, some other form of media, that an African-American male has committed some crime and is being paraded, you know, publicly in cuffs for some heinous crime. There's a sense of shame that comes over me because we have a sense that even as individuals, we are representing the collective. We stand as a representative of the Black American community, right? So very often, right, my, my Anglo brothers and sisters don't have that sense of, oh, if somebody white commits a crime, oh, that was just them doing it. That has no bearing on me whatsoever, right? But for African-Americans, it's, this is part of, this perception that we are somehow collectively less than, this is part of who African-Americans are. Right? And so learning, having to learn those realities and why they exist, not to necessarily speak, say I have to agree with it, but I gotta at least grasp it, right? And that's part of my responsibility. Again, if I'm learning to love well, if I'm concerned about loving people well, mm. then that's what I'll do. Hey, Erwin, it's me, Peter. Peter. Good to see you, man. Good to see you too, brother. Yeah, I know uh, my colleagues here have, we all have a bunch of questions that we want to keep asking you. So I, this might be my one and only chance to ask <laughs> anything in this podcast. So, um, uh, and, you know, your insights are so well seasoned and mature and thoughtful. And I so appreciate everything, like always, as you share. 
in light of the uh, Ahmad Aubrey uh, incident that Scott mentioned and, and that you were just commenting on, you know, it, you know, it was uh, it was not just the event, but the fact that it took two months before any arrest was made that just kind of stir up, you know, the the uh, the public. Um, about this, you know, I don't know if there were local conversations in the local jurisdiction that maybe was going on. I have no idea. Uh, but the fact that no arrest was made at all for two months, you know, it just seems like, um, you know, these conversations, as you know, have been going on for so long with so little improvement, you know, on behalf of the uh, Asian American community, you know, there's been a lot of uh, racist incidents, very violent, that's been now publicly made. Uh, in light of the COVID events that, you know, it it's, seems as if it needs to be drawn attention to with websites and and blogs before people are really paying attention to some really horrible stuff. You know, I've read about one poor Asian man that had like acid, poor yeah. space for no crime of his own. And um, I guess my my question, Erwin, is, and this is something I've wrestled with for, for quite a long time as I think through this issue of, uh, or this uh, matter of uh, public theology is, you know, the Bible teaches that we live in a fallen world, uh, that there is a sort of a redemptive pattern of suffering that leads to glory. So we are living in a time of, of suffering now uh, until the return of Christ. And, you know, First Peter tells us that we shouldn't be surprised by this. So, so my question, I guess, is what to what extent do we live in a world, in a society now that is in a fallen world and, and we live with sin, the consequences of sin, while at the same time we, we are called to dialogue and to call for change and some level of um, improvement here? I mean, how do we, how do we as Christians, uh, dance between those two um, uh, dualities. To what extent can we expect some, I guess, sanctification now or just improvement in our, in our world? Uh, what can we do and what can we ask and call for? What should we expect, I guess? So let me, let me answer it first this way, as we think about the church, right? The Apostle Paul has referred to this in uh, by the letter to the Ephesians, the first chapter of Ephesians, he is a long run-on sentence, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing in the heavenly places, right? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, his sons through Jesus Christ, and on and on and on, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, and he, he gets toward uh, around verse 9 and 10 and talks about how, right, the mystery of God's will has been revealed now that Christ has come, right, uh, uh, been crucified, risen from the dead. The mystery has been revealed of God's will. And, and he says that this is it, right? God's plan for the fullness of time to unite, to sum up all things in Christ, right? Things in heaven and things on earth, right? And then he, in the letter, right, he begins to give us kind of the practical applications of what this summing up all things in Christ looks like right now, right? That now that the uh, not yet um, uh, the glory, right, has broken into our world. 
Um, and he starts to talk about, uh, in, uh, toward the end of chapter two, right? Uh, one new man, Christ in his body, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. He killed the hostility between Jew and Gentile. He brought reconciliation, right? He starts to say, right, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, above all and in all and through all. I therefore urge you as a prisoner, <laughs> right, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's urging them to, to pursue the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that they are in Christ as people who are formerly hostile to one another, Jew and non-Jew, right? Wouldn't have anything together to do with one another, are together now in the body. This is the evidence, this is the evidence that God's plan has been revealed. And we know it's not coming in its fullness until glory, but that doesn't mean we're not compelled, commanded even, to press into being, bearing witness to it now. So what are the aspects of the consummation, the, the renewal of all things in Christ, the, the, uh, the, the glory right, that we will see when Revelation 21 and 22, when the, the tree of life is seen again in the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride adorned for her husband, where the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, right? That, that all of this healing and shalom is going to be there. Well, what do we do now? Do we just throw up our hands and say, oh, well, you know, well, yeah, that's, God's going to work it out. <laughs> so we're not going to worry about it right now. No, we're moved by that vision to pursue it now knowing that if we get any taste of it, it's by the work of God's Spirit. I mean, why has God given us His Spirit as a down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? It's not simply to twiddle our thumbs waiting around. Not simply, right, we've been saved for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, right? And so we enter into these conversations and these engagements with an eschatological hope of the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ, knowing that God will give us glimpses of it along the way. We won't receive it in its fullness until then, but we press into it and we, and we praise God when we see him giving us those glimpses. Mm. I could go on, but I better, I better stop. <laughs> That's awesome. You probably can't see the the chat, Erwin, as you're as you're waxing eloquent there. But all of us are just like, this is amazing, and applying <laughs> it to particular contexts and thinking through. It'd be interesting to to post, Erwin, if you can just say something quickly about how about outside of the church. Everything you're everything you're saying is totally I agree with. But you know what what do we do in terms of the church's interaction with the uh, secular community around yeah, us? That's right. So I think, that they, I think that the same thing applies in the sense that that's the eschaton is the renewal of all things in Christ. The creation groans, right? And, that, and, and so we have a particular ability 
to demonstrate God's desire for the renewal of all things within our communities, outside of the walls and bounds of the church, that the Lord does care about the flourishing and the well-being of people. He's a God of righteousness and justice, as the Psalms says in Psalm 89. They are the foundation of his throne. And so we speak into where we see injustices and iniquities at, at play and say, those that's not right. That does not align with the heart of God. And so, uh, and so uh, it will vary from place to place. I want to emphasize the need to be contextual, but there are evidences of the reality of the fall and the brokenness of our communities and our systems and our structures, wherever you find the church. And we have what the world doesn't have. We have the spirit of Christ who, so, so when we press into these things, we're not we don't have just a message about tolerance and tolerating other people. Our message is about reconciliation. Our message is about, right, not just justice, but loving your enemies. And it's, and it's good to love your enemies by telling them the truth <laughs> about the ways in which they're being unjust. Right? So, so, so we have something. We, woe is us if we, if we keep it to ourselves mm. and don't speak into these issues with a heart of love and a desire for reconciliation, right? That only happens around truth. So you've got to understand the truth when there's brokenness and, and sin and injustice and its impact. Hey, Erwin, this is uh, Paul. Uh, thanks for sharing everything you've been sharing. I, I really love it. Um, I do want to ask, I think, a, uh, a hard question. I I'm very curious to know what you would think of it. So, so all the other, other things you will easy to this point, is that what you're telling me? I've been getting the soft. It's all been easy so far. Now, now for the hard question. <laughs> well, well, I think it's a hard, or it's a, we'll see. But in any case, um, I agree with everything you said. Uh, for me, one of the most moving experiences I had was a good friend of mine who's Ethiopian. His son asked me for help on writing his college essay. Mm. And during that conversation, you know, we just got talking about a lot of different things. And I asked him, what are you most afraid of just as a person? And his response just moved me. He said, I know this sounds silly, but when my parents will say, hey, why don't you go on a jog this morning? He said, I'm afraid to because I've been asked by neighbors who have seen me for years, like, what are you doing here? And he, he told me, I'll never forget this. He said that when he ties his shoes for a split second, he thinks, you know, am I going to come home? And for some reason, that conversation really struck me at the core because I came home. And I remember thinking when I saw my kids, they never really have to, like, that will never cross their minds. You know, so that, that really got me thinking a lot. But the thing I thought a lot about was if I didn't have this personal relationship, a friendship, right, it would have been very easy to get lost in these theological categories like you allude to, right? So with that in the background, 
one of the things that I've been thinking about is, so you might be aware of this, that some minority churches and key figures have said, we should not be apologetic that we have um, an ethnic church, right? And we're, we're not apologetic about it. And, um, you know, I think that there's a movement like where uh, some have said, listen, we're minorities from Monday to Friday. So, um, you know, we're not apologetic that, you know, on, on weekends, we're, you know, we're not minorities, right? I think that th I personally think there are a lot of theological issues with that position. But in terms of our current conversation, I think it's very problematic because if you do not have deep relationships, like in the most profound sense in your church with people of different, you know, backgrounds and so forth, then you can't really feel this existential, you know, tug, you know, like, so the stories that you give, they affect me very differently because I have been communion. You know, I'm not reading about these things, right? I'm in communion. And so, you know, my question is, do you think that this espousal of minority ethnic churches, right, will actually impede progress towards uh, the kind of re racial reconciliation that you described. Does that make sense, Erwin, the question yeah. I'm asking? Like, yeah. In, in a uh, weird way, I, I almost feel like it's a reverse, it's like a justification for reverse discrimination. Does that make sense? Like, I, I, so I'm just curious to know like your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. The example you gave, your experience relationally enabled a real sense of empathy for for your brother, right? That it's not, mm -hmm. now you're not distant, you're not far removed yeah, from him, yeah. right? Because you are in communion, right? With, with one another. Um, and so it's important to, to wrestle through. I remember early on in our church plant, you know, 2007, one of our pastors had an opportunity to talk to some students at an university um, uh, chapter at a, uh, a campus in Maryland. And there was maybe one or two black students. And he, uh, the pastor asked them this question. He said, you know, quoting from um, famously, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about how, you know, when you stand at 11 a.m., Sunday mornings singing these hymns, there is no, in Christ, there is no East and West. You're standing at the most segregated hour in America, right? Um, that he said, why is it still the case that 11 a.m. Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in America? And this student, the black uh, student, said, uh, because we want to rest. He's speaking from the perspective of a minority. But to your point, um, Paul, that I've had lived, I've had to live as a minority. I've had to do the work of engaging majority culture, majority white space all week long. And I just need some comfort culturally, right? On, on Sunday mm -hmm. when we gather for worship. So here's what I say. A few things. One, 
coming to this conviction about really having a heart to press into reconciliation in the context of the local church that manifests itself by diverse peoples coming together in a given body or congregation is the spirit's work like he's got to convict our hearts for this pursuit right i don't try to come in and bludgeon people on the head and say <laughs> you know you are you're dis you know you're dishonoring christ unless you absolutely do things this way right um try to give an apologetic for it and root it in a, a robust understanding of the scripture and the history of redemption but i know that the spirit has got to bring people to to that conviction because he brought me to that conviction it wasn't always my conviction right um and then i would say we in we've got to answer this question that says how in these spaces that are you know ethnic minority churches and congregations how do we ensure or help to help to help to ensure that the kind of affirmation rooted in the imago day is still experienced by the people from this ethnic community this uh, ethnic minority community right because right for example i'll just go back to the, the quote unquote black church in america it as an institution maybe the 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 oldest african-american run <laughs> sustained institution in the united states the black church right that that began because of white supremacy and oppression and racism right but became the place where the dignity of black americans was not questioned it was affirmed that you are image bearers of God, right? Um, that kind of affirmation, we actually all need it as image bearers. We need um, Dr. Uh, Kirk Thompson, right? There in Northern Virginia, his book, The Soul of Shame, right? He puts it so well, says, we enter this world looking for someone who's looking for us. Like from the moment we open our eyes, we are looking for affirmation from another human being affirming our value and dignity right so ethnic minority churches that has been a has that's been a major aspect of it, of these ethnic minority churches right and so because other research says that the most the most successful this is recent research in the 2000s the most successful um, multiracial churches in the states are those, and it's successful in terms of congregation size, these, you know, statistics, you know, um, congregation size, longevity, they will say, this research says, are those that cater most to the white cultural norms. In other words, they're multiracial churches, but they are more monocultural than they are cross-cultural right and so 
people are, are being asked in these contexts to assimilate to white cultural norms, white American cultural norms. And so until we can forthrightly deal with those kinds of issues and say, all right, look, if we wanna pursue reconciliation, we know we can't do it perfectly, but we have to at least be willing to dive into the anim animating issues, at least from a horizontal perspective that we believe are hindering this pursuit in our church, in our congregation. Let's, let's not just speak generally, let's just speak about congregationally. These are the kinds of questions that we have to be asking ourselves, right? These are, you know, I talked in our class of uh, contextualization um, about how people experience belonging in a diverse church. What are the ways in which people experience the sense of being at home in a diverse church, particularly if you come from an ethnic minority background? And those things like affirmation and similarity, right, um, and uh, are, are a part of it. Right? And so we, we have to be asking some animating questions. And then the last thing I will say is, even if a church remains um, majority, minority, or majority, mono, ethnic, or, and cultural, I always say you do not get a pass on loving your neighbors. Nobody gets a pass on it. And nobody gets a pass on determining on on discriminating against neighbors. So who are the neighbors where the church is? And how is God calling you to express the love of Christ in your context? You've got to work through that. You've got to engage it. And what it looks like for your congregation, right? Lord gets to do that. But you've got to, we've got to do some wrestling and some working. And your, the importance, part of the importance of your question Paul, is that it's, got, it's going to be messy. It's always going to be messy, to Peter's point, until we arrive in glory. Right? There's no mess-free way of engaging it. Erwin, when we first talked about you coming on the podcast, I said I wanted you to come on and talk about your book. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and, and here, and here in we... In many respects, I have been. <laughs> I was going to say... Can you now give a title for the book in which you talk about everything that we've been <laughs> discussing? No, I'm, I'm familiar with your teaching and you and I have gotten to talk a lot about this. And I, I, I have a good sense, um, not of the entirety of the, but of the sort of seed of the argument going on in your upcoming book, the beautiful community, unity, diversity, and the church as at its best, it's being published by, IVP, and I think it's coming out this summer. As a matter of fact, you're going to be able to use it in one of the classes that you're teaching this summer, right. which is wonderful. Could you give us a little bit of an overview, even though I know we've been getting a bit of an overview yeah. here over the last, uh, the last few minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I haven't said explicitly is I, I really do root and ground this conversation in the Imago Dei. Right, the, the, the nature of God, that, that God, as I say in the book, God in himself is beautiful community. Um, unity and diversity, diversity and unity. And even that language, well, beautiful community, I, I kind of coined that. But that aspect of 
you know, in God too, there's unity and diversity, diversity and unity. That very phrasing is, for me, is influenced by Herman Bobbing. He writes that in his reform dogmatics, right? That, um, and so where he also says the image of God is much too rich to be fully realized in a single um, human being, no matter how richly gifted that individual may be, right? Um, and I say, and I, I would expand that to say, it's, it can't be fully realized in uh, a single race or ethnic group, <laughs> no matter what gifts and graces you find there. Mm -hmm. But as Bobbing says, it's only humanity in its entirety is one complete organism summed up under a single head, Jesus Christ, he's drawing from Ephesians 1 there, right? Um, as prophet proclaiming the truth, truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler exercising dominion over the entire, the whole creation, only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. And so what I try to root us in in the book is saying when God declares in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, uh, by necessity, human destiny was going to be in community, and it was by necessity going to be in diverse community. Because had, had the fall not occurred, you would have still had a variety of cultures as we cultivated the earth, as we were fruitful and multiplied. Right? Um, this reality is rooted in the diversity of humanity at the beginning, male and female. Right? Um, and so, and so the the point I want to make in this book is this beautiful, what I call beautiful community, right? Um, is not simply some nice to have, right? Um, but it is at the heart of what God is doing in the world. To quote from Peter Lightheart, he said a few years ago, he said, this is in some respects, the whole point of redemptive history that God is going to knit back the human race in his son. And so, the church should, should be uh, a community where that eschatological reality is, is being experienced in some degree, right? And so, so I, I make the case that this is part of God's heart and then give some practical ways where I think we can begin striving to pursue it in our local congregations. That's excellent. One of the best ways I think to sometimes talk through a book's argument is to apply it. And um, it's been a, it's been a treat for me to be able to teach with you in this Christ culture and contextualization class and to have this discussion. And um, I can tell from the chat on the side that everybody else has enjoyed it as well. So everybody pick up a copy of that book, uh, help Irwin put his kids through college um, if, you're looking, <laughs> if you're looking for a great ministry to support, support Institute of Cross-Cultural Mission. It's, they're, they're doing great work, touching on many important and I think crucial issues facing the church today. We usually end every podcast, Erwin, with some recommendations, thoughts uh, on, the, on the previous week, anything that anyone wants to recommend uh, in part, in terms of writing or watching, has anyone been watching the Last Dance documentary on the Bulls in the '90s? <laughs> Tommy Keen says no. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy Keen's shaking his head. Is that baseball? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's cricket. Um, but 
It's clearly about a dance. I mean, it's called Very The Last Man. Yeah. <laughs> One of those ballroom dancing documentaries. It's funny. It's just typical to my experience. I'm listening to a podcast review of it, and yet I haven't watched it yet, which is typical of, of how I do things these days. Any thoughts or recommendations? This is a little bit self-serving, but I'm really, really looking forward to seeing the TNC Clark Handbook to Analytic Theology, which is coming out probably about I think Christmas or January. Uh, James Anderson's got a chapter in there. Uh, I do have a chapter in there, but I'm not looking forward to seeing my own work again. I'm looking forward to all the other great chapters in there. Lots of good stuff from Oliver Crisp, uh, Tom McCall, of course, as I mentioned, James Anderson. So we're just really looking forward to all the, the entries in that big volume. It's going to be expensive, hmm. hardback. So get your libraries, order it. But yeah, it should be great, great release. Dr. Sutanto, are you one of those people who have a hard time reading yourself? Uh, yes, for sure. I try to not look at whatever I've written again after I've written it. This I'm glad it's out there. This should be a future topic of the podcast, how people <laughs> read and hear themselves. You oh, know, yeah. the, uh, the unspoken tradition around here, Gray, is that uh, we give each other free copies of each other's books. So uh, <laughs> This is going to cost me more, huh? Well, hey, man, you got to pay the piper. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just the price you pay for joining the community. Peter, you blew it. It was unspoken. Now it's been spoken. Right now it's spoken. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I meant unwritten. Unwritten. <laughs> that's yeah. right. It's, it's, it's not in long. your job description, but it's actually, it's in the real fine, fine, fine pr uh, print. What you mean? It's only spoken. This is oral tradition, not, not script. So, Erwin, same thing to you, dear brother. In fact, I, I wanted heard, I, heard, I gotta I get heard, an autographed copy. I heard a not so subtle undertone in, <laughs> in that, uh, that uh, comment to Gray. So <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting for uh, Paul's here. You know, his whole library of books. I'm still waiting for my free autographed copy. So we need Paul's bound together, like the complete works of Paul Jean. Paul, if you're That's smart, right. you say, "Yeah, I left him outside your office in March. They must be gone now. Somebody must have taken them." Well, I tried to hand I don't it know how to verse, but no one took me up on it. So I'll put Paul's books next to John, like 23 volumes of John Owen and then Paul's works. But my son, uh, uh, my son started watching and he's got me really intrigued on a, on a documentary. I'm not sure where called Waco. That's uh, about the, uh, the Branch Davidians and, and David yeah. Koresh, if you guys remember that back in the early I 90s. Was it Netflix? It well, I guess I, I'm curious because that, that really um, is what uh, really got me going into wanting to study uh, biblical messianism because, you know, it was a messianic movement and a lot of these Christian cult movements tend to be messianic, sort of, you know, Jonestown uh, type of thing. And uh, the secular uh, media sort of portrayed, you know, not not cult Christianity as being aberrant, but just sort of this is the logical outworking of of Christianity to be kind of kind of post-apocalyptic, you know, sort of this um, uh, extreme forms that ultimately is more damaging than good. And and so part of my uh, uh, academic interest is really just to is to try to study messianism biblically, but just more to redeem it within the eyes of the community that to be Christocentric or, you know, messianic, I guess that's an Old Testament way of looking at it. To be messianic is not equals to something that is disastrous, but um, 
the this documentary really interesting uh, is interviewing a, a, a survivor from the Koresh uh, mass suicide, but his take isn't was at least this is what my son tells me is that it wasn't a mass suicide. It was actually a mass uh, murdering uh, of the followers and that they were more than willing to kind of follow in lines with the uh, governmental uh, restrictions upon them. And so I'm, I'm curious to watch that and see what that's all about. So that, that got me really thinking. There's been a few great documentaries dealing with cults of late, both in podcast and on uh, you know, Netflix, Amazon Prime. I think that's endlessly fascinating to see sort of what it is that draws people into these extreme belief systems and um, you know, really the power of the charismatic leader to just draw people into all kinds of life changes and also the kinds of people who are sort of given to that sort of thing as well. Thanks everybody. Erwin, it's been great to have you on. We look forward to having you back on here in the future. Thanks for all having the time. Me. Good. All the time. You mean? <laughs> yeah. All the time. Yeah. As I get sucked in, is this is it? Yeah, I was telling you, you know, last guest that we had was Grace Sutanto and there's kind of a, a, a tractor beam around this podcast. He's, he's still stuck on here. So you'll probably be, spending your Monday mornings with us for the foreseeable future. Just go ahead and cut this out of your schedule. Yeah. Is it like, is it like uh, Star Trek and the Borg resistance is futile? You know? That's right. That's exactly it. You haven't noticed the small computer chip that's already been implanted in the back of your brain. That's right. That's right. It's been wonderful to talk to you brothers as well. Look forward to being back together again next week and to everyone else. Take care. It was pretty smooth, and I don't even think there's a lot to edit, to be honest. It was pretty smooth all the way through. Yeah. He did quote Peter Lightheart again. Yeah. <laughs> again. Peter Lightheart is pretty like, underrated. I think it would be, be hilarious if that's what we get flagged on. Like, <laughs> everything was great. <laughs> I quoted Peter Lightheart. <laughs> well, maybe we'll introduce somebody coughing over you. Hey, I got to stop I have to stop giving him credit for that sentence. It's so good. Yeah. Just got to just just One scholar said. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yes. yeah. Slightly. Then it's yours, man. <laughs>